Well, we're continuing in our series called The Reach of Christmas, and I want to read to us today from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Familiar part of the story, uh, and I invite you to stand with me as I read Matthew chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 to 12. At the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. It is the reach of Christmas that we're talking about, and we're looking in these weeks at several characters from the Christmas story, and we're thinking about, in particular, how God has reached to them, and how the Christmas story just demonstrates this expansive reach of God, and we're thinking about, in the reach of God, what this says to us about the heart of God. And in watching the way God moves and acts and extends himself to the people in this story, what lessons we can learn about how God moves and extends and reaches to the people in the world today, and how we can begin to align our hearts with God's heart in the way we interact with the world around us as well. I want to give you just a little bit of a review because you've been all over the place these last two weeks. About half of you, it feels like, were out working with the black sheep last Sunday, guarding the roads or traveling in different directions. And the Sunday before that was the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and many of you were traveling as well. Thanks to those who have been here holding down the fort, but, uh, but God bless the rest of you who have been different places. I, I, we're assuming that from the beginning of time, God could have planned and orchestrated the coming of Jesus into the world however he wanted to. And so what does it say that he chose to bring his son Jesus into the world in the way that he did? What does it say that he chose to to involve the kind of people in this story that he chose to involve? What can we learn about 
who God is in the way he reaches to these people and involves them in the story? What can we learn about what God values, what God thinks is important? What can we learn about the heart of God? How can we learn to reflect this heart? We're, We're not the Grinch, all right? I believe in the Grinch. You can fix my Christmas story knowledge here. But I believe at the end of the story, the Grinch's heart grows Three times? Anybody know if I'm right or wrong? All right. The grin is three times the size. It grew, it grew at the end of the story. Well, we're not talking about just growing our hearts as we read this Christmas story during this season. What, what I'm hoping for us to be thinking about is having our hearts transformed, just altered, rearranged, not just expanded, but, but made new, and for our hearts to be such that they are They are in step, in line. They are filled and fueled by the heart of God. And I just think that's such an important thing that we can learn from Scripture in general. I mean, we can learn so much information and interesting insights and all sorts of different kind of stories and characters. But if we miss the heart of God as we look at Scripture, then then we've missed the, the main part of Scripture. As we, as we see this story and as we see the heart of God, then we can begin to, to have that become our heart and pray that the Spirit would take God's heart and just, just create a new heart and a clean heart and a beautiful and a godly heart in us that we might see and respond and act in the world as God does. So we suggested a couple of weeks ago that, that Mary's role in the story ought to say something to us about the heart of God for women We see God reaching to Mary and calling her and equipping her and empowering her to to carry out his plans and purposes. Every woman today should know that God's heart is for you to be a full participant in his mission to the world with all the rights and all the responsibilities that any person would have that come along with that invitation. And every man, we've said, should make room and should make space in the church and in the world and in our hearts for the women around us to respond to God's reach. We said last week that the significant role played by the shepherds in the the story should say something to us about God's heart for people who have been pushed to the margins of society. What does it say about God, that he reached to these shepherds, the forgotten ones, perhaps even the invisible ones, and, and, and given that they were the ones that were given a glimpse of heaven as the angels sang, that they were the ones that were summoned to the stable to see the babe lying in the manger. What does it say to us about God's heart? It, it says at least a couple of things. One is that if you're on the margins today, or if you've been pushed to the margins, if you ever know what that feels like to live there, then God's heart is for you. God knows you. God sees you. He knows your name. The one who sees you is inviting you to be an important part of what he's doing in the world. And it means as well to the rest of us that our eyes are to be open and our arms are to be outstretched to all of those around us who may be slipping through the cracks. One of the men at my table this Wednesday night at Advent Reflections, and if you haven't yet been, let me just make a quick plug. We've got one more this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, and they have been wonderfully rich times. And one of the men at my table 
said that he had heard a story about someone who, whenever he went into a, an environment, a new situation, he would always look for that person who seemed to be on the, the outskirts, who on the outside, that was being excluded, and would always go to that person. And we can know that whenever we do that, we, we are following and living out the heart of God. And this is what the story of the shepherds even tells us. So today it's the wise men that we want to focus our attention on as we think about the reach of Christmas, see what we might be able to learn about the heart of God from his exclusion or his inclusion of this mysterious band of, of international travelers. I, I began to write this, these international men of mystery. I didn't think that would be appropriate, but I said it anyway. Um, what can we learn about these these? wise men and their inclusion in the story. Well, perhaps as you heard me read it again, this narrative about the wise men, you were reminded yourself about what we actually know about the wise men and what has just been added to our knowledge about the wise men by tradition and uh, just extra storytelling throughout the years. To be honest, there is a lot that we don't know about these so-called wise men. In fact, as I kind of started to recount some of the things that I've heard about the wise men and held them, those, those bits of information up against the actual biblical narrative that I've been reading throughout this week and that we read again this morning, I, I was, I was, it kind of came to me that it seems like there is at least as much conjecture and theory, things that we think think we know about the wise men as there is actual historical data and information that we can draw from the narrative. In fact, there's probably much more conjecture and theory than there is actually what we know for sure from the narrative. They only have one line in the whole story, one speaking part, and basically they're saying, where is the newborn king of the Jews? And they're just asking a question, just one speaking part. And it all adds their, their silence, their, their movement through this story. It all adds to this kind of aura of mystery that surrounds the wise men. We know them as wise men. Matthew's name for them in the, in the original language, the Greek, is actually better translated, translated the magi. And uh, you've heard that term perhaps for them. It's a term that suggests that they were likely, they were more scholars than, than kings. They were students of astronomy and astrology, which were kind of held together back in that day as both being somewhat scientific. They were part scientists, but as the name suggests, they were also part magician, magi, part very mystical. They're from the Eastern lands, we're told. But was that Babylonia, was that Egypt, was that Arabia? These are all good and possible candidates. And that star that they followed, this is another one that we've loved to think about. Was it a natural phenomenon? Some of you would say, oh yeah, that was a comet, or that was an alignment of the planets, or that was a supernova. Uh, Or others would say it's just a miraculous occasion. It was just a time in which God worked outside the boundaries of the natural law in order to accomplish his purposes. Add to this that while the 
Magi are often included in our nativity sets. How many of you have set up a nativity set yet in your home? Okay, good. A few of you. I, I hardly affirm the nativity set. Um, we went looking for one here at our church this week. Aaron and Anders did. We don't happen to have one. If you have two or three and you'd like to donate one to the church, we, we would maybe take that off your hands. Maybe. I want to see it first. But uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we, most of us have wise men in the nativity sets that we set up. We have the, the magi there. And yet, careful Bible readers like to point out that several details of the story suggest that the visit of the magi to see Jesus likely came at a point weeks or even months after the birth of Jesus. The baby is called a child in these verses, if you noticed. The, the Magi enter a house to see him and not a stable. Herod will eventually order that all boys two years and under be killed uh, in order to hopefully stamp out this threat to his throne. But again, we really don't know for sure. Mary and Joseph had a home in Nazareth. Why hadn't they gone back to it? They were still in Bethlehem. There's all sorts of mystery that surrounds this passage. The number of the Magi is another um, most of our nativity set recreations have three, and as perhaps most of you have thought about, we're never really told that. We only guess at the number based on the number of gifts that have been given. You know, one per person, I guess, seems appropriate, so we limit it to that. There's usually three shepherds too, right? And uh, so it's just nice balance, maybe four shepherds. We don't really, it, throughout history, they've been given... Uh, personal and psychological profiles. We don't know anything about this. We don't know their names. We don't know their skin colors. We don't know what it was necessarily that they were like. All this being said, isn't it, isn't it just affirming that you can come to church and just have the pastor tell you all that we don't know? <laughs> Did anybody sign up for that today? Just going to have a pastor stand there and tell us all the things we don't know about the Bible. Well, in the midst of all the things that we don't know, let me tell you a few things that we do know about the wise men, the magi. And more importantly, I think, than telling you what we do know is to draw out from what we do know what we can know about the heart of God based on what we see in the movement and in the action of the magi. A few things that we can glimpse about these guys that can point us to the heart of God and point us to some of the things that matter most to him. Well, to begin with, we know that the Magi had come from distant lands. We, we may not know exactly from where they had come, uh, but, but it was clear that they were not from around here, as the uh, people in Jerusalem might have said as they came wandering into town. These people were, were foreigners. They were international travelers. They were non-Israelites. They were Gentiles who were far from home as they wandered into this scene. A lot of scholars think that they were from Babylonia because they apparently know something about Israel's expectation of a coming king. 
that, that would have meant that they were perhaps near to a, a Jewish or Israelite settlement, and there was that in Babylonia. So there's some suggestion here that, that they knew of this Israel's expectation of a coming king, and they had seen this star that they just took to mean, and, and somehow it made sense to them that this star meant that this king was being born. But other than that, they were pretty, pretty out of the loop. In fact, we could say that not only did they come from very geographically distant lands, but they were also coming from very distant spiritual lands as, as well. Instead of looking to the Creator and to His Word for guidance and instruction, these were people who looked to the stars, looked to their own calculations for wisdom and for meaning, and to the people of Israel and to the early church, these would have been some of the least likely, if you think about it, and and least deserving people to have been invited to the birthday of the Christ. Geographically distant, spiritually distant, new age philosophy and thinking, if you want to put one of today's labels on the Magi. And yet these are the people that were welcomed and invited by God. And in this welcome and in the presence of the Magi at the celebration of Jesus' birth, we begin to see a picture of of the wideness. Is that a word? The wideness and the expansiveness of the mercy of God. We see in these very early and beginning stages that the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is a God who is for all the people. He's a God who is a God of all the nations. And that this gospel of Matthew, if you remember Matthew, that will end with the Great Commission in chapter 28, where Jesus sends out his disciples, to all the nations, this gospel that will end with that great commission begins with an invitation for all the nations, in a sense, to come to him, represented by the Magi. We learn from the story that there is not a square inch of this globe that is beyond the love and the reach of its creator. Not a single tribe, language, culture, faith, not a single person unknown to God and beyond his reach. He writes the world, represented in these magi, so far spiritually perhaps, so far culturally, so far geographically, and yet God's heart is for the world. That's what we learn. The Magi teach us that God's heart is for the world. I, I get to coach some of my son's teams and watch some of his games, many of his games, most of his games, all of his games, if I can make it happen. And one of my favorite things in, in coaching is to not only watch the players, but I love to watch the parents. Uh, I've learned some things about this over the years, and I can't say that my my, you know, sideline uh, behavior 
has always been the very best that it possibly could be, but usually it's, it's okay. Um, but I love to watch parents because, I mean, especially in baseball. I mean, baseball is kind of a boring sport. Let's be honest, Greg. I know this is offensive to you <laughs> and to others. Thank you. Protect me, Greg. Uh, but, but it's kind of boring. And, and, you know, if you don't, especially if you don't know the intricacies of the game, it can be like, all right, they're throwing the ball again. Okay, you hit it. What does that do? What does that mean? And, and you can see, I mean, if you're up in the stands, there's little conversations that are going on between the parents and, you know, just talking about the weather or what's that over there. But as soon as their child comes up to bat, it's a whole different story. And some of you parents and grandparents know exactly what I'm talking about. As soon as your child comes up to bat, it's like, don't talk to me. Get the video camera out. Get the phone out. I got a video of this. I got to capture this for the ages. This is probably going to be the time when he, you know, earns his major league contract. So I got to get this down. And, and, and we become just the biggest fans of the game because we're fans of our own kids. I, I just kind of think that this is something the way God feels about the world, <laughs> And, and this sense of his invitation and welcome of the Magi gives us this sense that, that, that the heart of God is for the world. And when he steps back and when he stepped back and looked at his creation and saw all that he had made, he said, it is good. And even in our brokenness, even in the fact that sin has entered into the world and we have strayed from him, he looks at us and says, I love that world. I love those people in that place, and don't talk to me because I'm focused on them, and I love them, and some of them are so far from me. Some of them have been turned away and turned in a different direction and misled and misguided, and they've, they've fallen so far from me, and yet my heart, God says, is that they would all make their way back to me. There's not a single one of them that is beyond my love, beyond my grace, beyond my reach. My heart, God says, is for the world. Amen? And it has all sorts of implications, friends, for the way that we're allowing our hearts to be changed and transformed. For the way that we're looking at the world that we're a part of and the, the tragedies and the dangers and the wars and the brokenness and the divisions and the, the, the conflicts between people groups and between faith and between you name it. We've got it in the world. And, and yet, if we're to have the heart of God, it means not to step into our particular sectarian position and say it's us against them. It's to say, no, we're for it all. God doesn't say it's me against them. God says it's me for them. And our call as God's people and to have his heart is to step into that same place. And so we pray for and stand in solidarity with believers around the world. We concern ourselves with missionaries and with missions around the world. We pray for non-believers who are part of our global community. They may be enemies of ours in political and geographical terms, but they are 
part of this global community that God so loves. We pray for immigrants and for refugees and for strangers in our own lands. We pray for people of other faiths. We pray for Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and people of the thousands of other world religions that there are. We think and we act and we pray for the world because God's heart is for the world. And it shows us that right here in this little story. We also know without a doubt from this story, again, there's lots that we don't know, but we also know without a doubt that in one way or another, I know that's not very conclusive, but in one way or another, these magi experienced the guiding hand of God. We, we can't, again, try to understand all the details of how this happened. You know, that star. First, it was a star rising. Then in verse 2. Then over in verse 9, it was a star that came again to them after they had been instructed by, by Herod, who had been instructed by the religious leaders, who had been instructed by the scriptures, the prophet. And then it was the star again. Now it was more like, you know, just like leading us. And it says it came to rest over the place where the child was. We don't know what was natural, what was literal, what was poetic, what was symbolic. But the picture of this scene is clear. God is leading these people to himself. God is actively, graciously at work making himself known and inviting and extending and reaching and helping and guiding and leading. Sometimes it was with the star. Sometimes it was with the scripture. Some commentators pointed this out. I thought it was very interesting that, that, the, that the, the natural phenomenon, the natural revelation, the stars can get you to Jerusalem, but it's only the scriptures that can get you to Bethlehem. And you can think about how God has led and guided in your life. And perhaps it was sort of some, some sort of, you know, lightning strike or star in the sky that opened your eyes or first alerted you to him. But it was not until you began to dig through the pages of Scripture that began to realize just what it was and who it was that God was calling you to follow and to become. You see in the story the heart of God for the world to find him. Seen the story, the reality that God is not making it hard on people. God is not playing like hide and seek. When I was a kid, my grandpa and I, my mom's side, we loved to play this game. I don't know if this is a grandpa game. It feels like it's going out of style because I haven't seen or heard of it for a while. Hide the thimble. Has anybody ever heard of or played hide the thimble? Mostly grandpas in the room <laughs> waving at me. And, and, and hide the thimble is exactly what it sounds like. You get a little thimble. Most of us don't even know what a thimble is. It's a sewing instrument, I believe, and you put it over your finger. I just know it as a thing to hide in a game, but it's a sewing instrument. And the, and the key is essentially to hide it in plain sight. The, the, the point of the game is to, is to make it blend in into the room where you are. And my grandfather and I, we played dominoes and hide the thimble. 
Is that classic? That's a memory coming back to me right now. It's pretty rich. But we played hide the thimble, like it seemed like for hours, and such patience from this man to play that game. And, and we would just, you know, hide the thimble. I remember some of the crazy spots that he would hide it, and I would probably try my best. It would be way too easy, and he would just play along that he couldn't see it. But we would, and we would play the, you know, the, the, the thing you do when you're playing a hiding game. Warmer. Warmer, cold, cold, warmer, warmer, warm, 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 hot, hot, so, oh, it'd burn you, burn you. And my grandpa had some of the greatest sayings for that. And, and cold, this, this spectrum of warmth, of, of heat to, to cold, and, and this is how close you are to, to finding the object. Uh, again, in this story, I God, God isn't like the, the great big thimble hider in the sky saying, warmer, oh, cold, cold, ooh, chilly. No. It's not like, ooh, warm, warmer. No, you're getting there. Good luck. Warmer, warmer. No. The story shows us God's heart is that the world would find him. God's heart is for the world, and God's heart is for the world to find him. He's not hiding out somewhere. Here's a star. Here's natural phenomena. He, he used, uh, what was it, a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day to guide the Israelites. He used fish to somehow attract the disciples. He, he, he used all... Uh, 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 just blinding light to get uh, Paul's attention. He, he, he uses all sorts of natural phenomena to get the attention of people. He's wanting to make himself known. He adapts himself. He's used all sorts of means perhaps to draw us to himself. Maybe you can think back about some of the people or some of the situations or some of the conversations that, that somehow awakened in you this awareness of God's presence and God's love. It's hard for the world to find him. The, uh, there, there's a big word for this. The, the call to Magi reminds us of the doctrine of prevenient grace. It's, it's kind of a big word, but it's one that I say from time to time, and I just want to make sure that I'm continuing to drill that into your hearts and minds as much as I can. This doctrine that simply says, before any of us ever knew God or turned to him or even had the ability to do so, he was reaching to us. And, and we, we just don't subscribe. It's not biblical that, he, that God helps those who help themselves. I mean, it might be a nice idea. And in some levels, it might actually play out that way. But God helps those is really what the Bible says. That God extends his grace to us. And then in response to that grace, then we can help ourselves as we Turn to him. God is making himself available to us. What's crazy in the scene, if you caught this, is that these despised astrologers, or these that were outside of the, the realm of, of, of Jewish thinking and geographical location, um, they're, they're the ones who follow the, the leading while the religious leaders stay home. 
I mean, they, they read it to Herod. This is where it says. And then they tell the Magi who go while they stay home. Ah, it's just a little bit of a warning shot across the bow to those of us who are the insiders in this story that we dare not miss the leading of God that comes to us, leading us to himself. If God's heart is to lead people to himself, then that ought to be our heart as well. Everything that we do then as followers of Jesus, our, our attitudes, our actions, our worship, our service, it all ought to be pointing to Jesus. In fact, throughout the, the centuries in church history, the ministry of the church has often been compared to the star of Bethlehem. Star of Bethlehem, thought, thought compared to the ministries of, of the church, the sermon, the class, the conversation, the VBS, the youth ministry, the missionary work. These are the stars of today that are pointing people to Christ. And so we pray for this light of Christ to shine in the world in us and through us as it did for these first wise men. Finally, one, one last thought. We can know for sure that, that wherever they came from, more qualifiers, wherever they came from and and, and however they got there, that when they arrived, the Magi met Jesus face to face and they fell down in worship. Some scholars look at this and they say, well, this is actually just a, an expression of international visitors paying homage to, a, to royalty. And, and that could be true. But for Matthew, in his telling of this story, this homage is much more than just superficial. It's much more than just official. It is a demonstration and a sign and an anticipation of the fact that God and his heart is for all the world to worship him. In fact, Scripture talks over and over in the Old Testament and New Testament about how one day in this this, this eschatological, this end-time vision, there's another big word for you, it's a good one though, this end-time vision that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Magi give us a little peek into that right at the very beginning of the story. They show us that this is what this baby is destined for. They show it that, that this is what God's heart is for the world, that, that we would know him, that we would find him, that we would worship him, and that we would come with joy, giving Jesus the very gift of our lives. God's heart for the is for the world. God's heart is for the world to, to find him. God's heart is for the world to worship him. And I just love the part about the, the Magi giving these gifts to Jesus. And, and we dare not miss this because this is ultimately what our worship can maybe best be described as. When we come and we offer ourselves completely to him, not just, I, just, I fear that in our day we mistake worship for what we get from God. 
we get a good feeling or we get inspired or we get uplifted or we get a charge for the week or we get challenged. And there's nothing wrong with getting, but that getting comes as we first of all give. And in this amazing gift that God has given to, to, to the world in Jesus, now the Magi are sparked to give of what they have to him. And in so doing, give us such an, an important example and reminder of what our worship is to be, what God longs for in our worship, that we would give to him of our very best, of our gifts, of our talents, of our abilities, of our finances, of our time. These are all acts of worship. Not simply showing up on a Sunday morning, as important as it is, but daily worshiping God, worshiping Jesus through the giving of our lives to him. And so we look forward to that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the meantime... By our worship, we continue to shine the light. We continue to set an example of what we are inviting and what God is inviting the whole world to know and to experience. Well, John said in his gospel these words. I think I have this on the screen. John 3, 16. Is that on there? Read this with me, would you? For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. And what John says in a verse, Matthew says in a story. Does that make sense to you? What John said in that verse, Matthew takes about 12 verses God so loved the world, or as the NLT confuses us, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. God loved the world, represented in the Magi, so much that he gave his son Jesus to show us forever and ever. There's a whole lot that we can't know about this story, but we can know this. God and his heart is for the world. God's heart is for the world to find him. God's heart is for the world to worship him. We get to receive the Lord's Supper today as we're doing each Sunday in this Advent season. And what an opportunity for us as we come to receive the bread and the juice to give thanks to God for his reach to the world that has included us in our church um, we celebrate an open table. That means that if you know Christ or if you are seeking to know Christ this morning, you are welcome to come and participate in this holy meal. And we believe that that is an extension of God's heart for the world, that he's calling each one of us to him. And so as we come and receive these elements today, would you do so with a heart of thanksgiving for all that he has done? And would you also do so with this clear and firm recognition that Jesus' body and his blood were broken and poured out for the world? 
and that his invitation to each of us is to be broken and poured out for the world in the same way. I invite our worship team and my servers to come and meet me here. Let's pray together. God, thanks so much. Stand with me, would you? For this uh, wonderful reminder today of your heart. And God, as, as members and as participants in this global community ourselves, we know just how difficult it is sometimes to try to wrap our brain around and wrap, wrap our hearts around all that is going on around this globe. It is so complicated. It is so difficult, this world that we live in, to try and grasp and understand. And, and, and so many times, God, we, we perhaps feel like we're just grasping at straws. Or, or maybe we, we feel ourselves kind of landing in one particular place, and then we begin to realize, wait, that's not quite right. And so we fall into another place, and we know that's not quite right. God, there's a lot that we can't know about this story, and that's okay. Perhaps the, the details have been intentionally veiled so we'd be sure to catch the central heart of this passage. That you're for the world, God. That you're for the world to find you. You're for the world to worship you. And as your people, God, we pray that our hearts would be so transformed and so filled by your Holy Spirit that we would be aligned in that way with your heart, God, and we would become people who by our actions and our attitudes and the words that we say and the things that we do would be people who demonstrate this very same heart, Lord. Thank you that your reach through Jesus included us. May we never take that for granted. May we never assume that. But may we always give thanks, and even as we receive these elements today, may we do so with grateful hearts. And may we remember that Jesus came not just for us, but for the world, and that just as he was broken and poured out, so might we be also. So we thank you, Jesus, that as you met with your disciples on that night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you passed it to them, and you broke it, and you said, this is my body broken for you. Take of it and eat. And in the same way, you took the cup, said, this is the cup of salvation, symbol of my blood shed for you. Take of it and drink and remember me. And as we eat and as we drink today, God, may we be mindful of who you are and all that you have done to your glory and to your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>